Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for May 26th, 2017. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is your source each Friday for commentary and insights from practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate law developments. Today's show regards a U.S. Supreme Court patent law ruling in another case involving consumer protections that very likely may meet high court review in the near future. First, we'll hear from Ben Davidson of the Davidson Law Group about T.C. Heartland v. Kraft Foods, a Scottish ruling for Monday that re-endorsed a narrow and special approach to venue in patent cases, in which uh, meaningfully shifts the IP law playing field in favor of corporate defendants. Prior to this ruling, the prevailing belief endorsed by the Federal Circuit in a 1990 case was that corporate defendants could be sued for patent infringement anywhere personal jurisdiction applied to them. But that ruling conflicted with 1957 U.S. Supreme Court precedent, holding that such defendants, for the most part, could only be sued where they are incorporated. Intervening congressional amendments to the U.S. Code chapter containing the relevant statutes had made uncertain whether that 1957 case was still good law. Turns out, as a unanimous court ruled Monday, it is. Corporate defendants may only be sued where they're incorporated, or under a different part of the statute, not at issue in this case, where they have an established place of business. The ruling upsets the current trend where patent plaintiffs often haul defendants into far-flung courts, regularly the Eastern District of Texas. And critics of that practice said it was often abused by patent trolls attempting to gain the legal system through form shopping. We'll then hear from Mike Calhoun of the Center for Responsible Lending about a D.C. Circuit on Bank appeal regarding the constitutionality of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Created as a part of the Dodd-Frank Act after the 2008 financial crisis, it meant to police and prevent predatory and abusive lending practices, but which, critics say, stymies business growth. One lender, PHH Corporation, now asserts that the CFPB's structure, wherein one director heads the Bureau and can only be fired by the president for cause, not at will, is unconstitutional. A 2-1 panel agreed in October, and now the full court heard arguments this week in a case that seems very possibly en route to the country's high court. Before we hear from my guest, let me remind you first, as always, that CLE credit is available for listeners of the podcast. It's very simple. Just find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. With no further preamble, then, I bring in my conversation with Ben Davidson, the Davidson Law Group, about the important patent law ruling from Monday TC Heartland versus Kraft Foods. Happy to welcome back to the podcast our, our resident patent law expert, Ben Davidson of the Davidson Law Group here in Los Angeles, who has litigated a, a number of patent trials on both sides for defense and, and plaintiff for some, some major players in, in the IP uh, law context. Mr. Davidson, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. So uh, we're talking about a case ruled on this week from the U.S. Supreme Court that, as I understand it, seems to be a fairly significant, almost seismic shift in the way that patent cases going forward will uh, be litigated. At the center of this case, it's T.C. Heartland versus Kraft Foods. Um, we have a, a fairly straightforward kind of technical uh, statutory interpretation question, uh, one revolving around venue, essentially where corporate defendants can be sued in, in patent cases. But the, the, the bigger picture is, is, is kind of more interesting here and obviously very important. And that bigger picture is um, – a trend in recent decades where patent holders um, might sue corporate defendants in fairly far-flung, far-away, hard-to-get-to districts. Um, for example, many, many, many uh, patent law cases are funneled into the eastern district of Texas, uh, and that uh, can tend to work as a disadvantage to defendants. So um, that broader trend is at issue um, 
in this case, although we might point out at the top here that that's not what happens in this case, right? This case was not brought in a faraway, uh, far-flung district. It was brought uh, in Delaware, I understand. So how, how exactly did this case become a vehicle through which the court's um, going to now grapple with that larger question of, uh, of patent suits being brought and hard to get to federal districts? Well, that's right. The, the plaintiff in this case is not what many people pejoratively refer to as a patent troll. It's uh, Kraft Foods, a very uh, uh, prolific company in terms of inventions, and uh, it sued a smaller competitor for patent infringement, for infringing three patents. And it sued in Delaware, where uh, this company, the defendant, T.C. Heartland, has uh, made substantial sales. The first year was $300,000 of sales. And uh, the reason it uh, the issue of venue went all the way to the Supreme Court is that the uh, the defendant's lawyer, T.C. Heartland's lawyer, raised it and aggressively pushed it. Uh, uh, when, when the district court disagreed that there was no venue, he uh, sought mandamus relief from the federal circuit. When the federal circuit predictably said, this has been law for 30 years, we've said for 30 years that corporations in patent cases can be sued wherever they're subject to personal jurisdiction, he uh, sought and was granted uh, cert relief by the uh, or cert review by the Supreme Court, and uh, the timing was ripe because, as you say, the the issue, uh, aside from the the kind of mundane perhaps issues of statutory construction, on a national scale, the issues of where where do you sue corporations for patent infringement, it has gained a lot of attention. And uh, and so the Supreme Court was ready to to address the issue globally. And I mean, I I remember many years ago somebody told me uh, people think trial courts care about the facts, and that um, appellate courts really only care about the law. And um, it, it's sometimes not that way at all. Sometimes it's the facts that really persuade the appellate courts, and especially the Supreme Court that it's time to take a look at what has been sort of established law that people have been applying here for really 30 years to see whether uh, things are working the way they should be working. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into more as, as to why that law has been established this particular way, what the, the trends have been in, in patent litigation. But one other sort of small quirk here in this appeal is another way in which sort of the, the question presented and reckoned with by the court doesn't totally connect with, with the facts. We're talking about venue for corporate defendants and patent suits, but here we have a, an LLC, T.C. Heartland, as the as a defendant, a limited liability company. How does the court address this question with regard to, to corporate defendants if we don't actually have one involved in the case? Well, uh, that that's right. It, it's, uh, it's by virtue of the fact that in the pleadings, the defendant uh, had admitted uh, that it was a corporation, and uh, that's the way the issue was raised uh, to the federal circuit and to the Supreme Court. It was only in the briefing that the the parties raised that it's actually not the defendant was not a corporation but an unincorporated association. But the but the Supreme Court said we we have to address the issue as it has been litigated. And so they didn't uh, reach the issue of the petitioner's actual legal status. That's that's for the lower courts to decide. 
Okay, then maybe let's walk through the way that patent cases have, have been litigated and the way that venue rules have been applied over um, over history. So maybe backing up a bit in the beginning of the 20th century and, and through much of it, as I understand it, the venue rules were, were fairly limited. Companies or corporations could be sued in the area that they were uh, incorporated, in the state they were incorporated. And that system, that fairly narrow application of venue, was affirmed by the Supreme Court in uh, a case that we'll probably talk about in 1957. Um, subsequently, as we'll also talk about, there are some Congress, uh, congressional amendments uh, to the relevant venue um, provisions or to one of the venue statutes in the 1980s. And, and I think that's when things began to change and when venue started to, to broaden, correct? What uh, what were those amendments and how did they o- sort of open the door for this modern trend over the last 30 years you discussed of patent suits being being brought into in far-flung locations? Well, that's right. I mean, just to uh, give you the landscape, it's true that patent law uh, has had for nearly uh, – actually more than 100 years, its own specific patent venue statute. And that that was always uh, expressly uh, uh, so that Congress could limit where companies could be sued for patent infringement. And in fact, that uh, the first uh, such statute was passed in, uh, in 1900. Um, and uh, the Congress then recodified that statute as what we have now, which is uh, 28 U.S.C. 1400B as a standalone statute for patent cases where, uh, just as it does now, because it has not been amended, it really limits where uh, patent cases can be filed, a venue, um, to two things. One is where a, a defendant resides, and the second is uh, where a defendant has committed acts of infringement and has a regular and established place of business. So it's really very limited uh, and historically, it was very limited where you could where you could um, sue anyone for uh, patent infringement. Um, but um, people challenged the the sort of the the, the meaning of that statute, even uh, you know even as 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 early as 1957, there was a Supreme Court case called Forco versus Transmira, uh, where um, the plaintiff said the definition of resides in the statute is broader than it might look because there's another statute, uh, a general venue statute passed the same year by Congress in 1948 that defined the residence of a corporation to be anywhere it's doing business. And the Supreme Court in 1957 said, no, we're not going to interpret the specific venue statute for patent cases based on a definition found in the general venue statute in um, Section 1391. Uh, and so that was all the way back in 1957. Um, 1988, Congress amended the general venue statute with some language that said, uh, for purposes of venue under this chapter, a defendant that's a corporation is deemed to reside anywhere where it's subject to personal jurisdiction. And uh, two years later, the Federal Circuit said, okay, uh, based on that amendment to the general venue statute, uh, we now understand that Congress wanted uh, for any uh, case brought under this chapter, meaning the, the, the chapter dealing with venue, uh, that corporations can be sued anywhere they're subject to personal jurisdiction. And that was the case in, in 1990, V.E. Holding versus Johnson Gas Appliance. 
So uh, that 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 has been the law since had been the law since 1990. That y- if you're suing a corporation for infringement, uh, once you have personal jurisdiction established, venue is a, a foregone conclusion. You can you can you can sue them anywhere where they're subject to uh, personal jurisdiction. Um, the, the landscape changed somewhat in 2011 when Congress again amended the venue, the general venue statute, uh, really uh, through a clarifying uh, amendment. Um, and T.C. Heartland, the, the defendant in, in the case that was just decided, uh, said that those amendments uh, actually show that Congress intended for patent cases uh, that uh, that plaintiffs rely only on the specific patent venue statute and not on the general language of the uh, of uh, the general venue statute for for corporations so that that's how the case was was teed up for the Supreme Court to review essentially that well there the Supreme Court decided forco in 1957 yes for 30 years the Federal Circuit has said that uh, forco really is not the law anymore in terms of the, the the current venue statutes, but uh, TC Heartland said we, we are relying on some nuances in the 2011 amendment that show that the Federal Circuit's uh, holding is no longer applicable and that the, the residence doesn't isn't defined so broadly for corporations. Okay, so yeah, it does sound like, as you say, the the timing is fairly ripe for this question to to once and for all be addressed, as it, as it was here. Um, why uh, do you think that so many cases have been funneled into, for instance, this particular district in Texas, the Eastern District? Uh, it's become just a really the hub of, of much patent litigation. Is there something about that district that makes that has has attracted folks to it? What 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 explains that? Well, um, you know. It won't be surprising that people on different sides of the bar will tell you different things, but but I think it's 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 recognized that it started out because uh, the, the the Eastern District of Texas uh, had what's called a rocket docket. It, it it was very easy for a plaintiff to get to trial in less than two years, sometimes in not much more than one year. Uh, and that's good if you're a plaintiff, especially in a contingency case. Uh, you want a quick, dis- quick decision. You want to get to trial fast. And uh, if you're a defendant, you 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 would you want to never go to trial. Um, so um, plaintiffs flocked there because uh, the chief judge, Judge Ward at the time, had uh, uh, adopted these uh, very helpful, actually local rules, requiring the parties to do certain things. Uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a set amount of time to move the case forward, so you know what each side's contentions are, and, and the case rapidly moves forward towards summary judgment. So that's how it started. It, but as more and more people came to the Eastern District of Texas, as more and more cases were filed there, actually the time to get to trial got longer and longer. But the cases still came, uh, and 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 many people would tell you, and certainly I, I had the experience. Uh, as, as a defendant, it, it could be frustrating to be part of a, uh, especially a multi-defendant case where, you know, you might have 
10 co-defendants or more, and uh, it would be difficult to get any resolution of the case early on. Uh, and, and that historically has been hard for defendants to get an early decision on summary judgment in that district. I mean, you might have great defenses, and if you do, you may well win on summary judgment, but you have to go through typically all manner of discovery until you get there. And especially for, for smaller uh, or mid-sized companies, the, the discovery costs could be devastating. And I mean, this happens in litigation everywhere, and it certainly happens in this district and any other district. But um, the, the discovery costs, the litigation costs off a lot of times would make it worthwhile just to settle for an amount of money that's less than what you're going to pay for, for your lawyers for six months. Uh, and so, you know, many people think that that's why there, there was so much litigation centered in, in in the Eastern District of Texas. I mean, and you know, it's also true that they do have some of the best patent judges because they have so many of those cases. They have become truly experts and, and lawyers who have clerked in the Eastern District have become really some of the best patent lawyers in the country and they move to dis- different districts. But um, you, you would not be, it would not be a good day to find out you got sued anywhere and for most defendants getting sued in the Eastern District of Texas where you may have no real business connection, and often don't. Uh, it, it's it's not great news. Yeah, you're only hauled into court there by virtue of the the broader personal jurisdiction related interpretation of the statute, which, as you said, the the federal circuit sort of reapproved in, in this appeal, setting up the Supreme Court to to once and for all sort of decide what law controls here, the, the 1957 decision or the more recent Federal Circuit one. Um, we have a reversal here, a unanimous one, and, and a fairly concise opinion written by Justice Thomas. Can you walk me through this opinion and, and tell me why the court feels that the the Federal Circuit essentially got it wrong in this case and also in, in the, the V Holdings case from, from 30 years ago? Why should the venue statute sort of be interpreted differently in the, the patent context as opposed to the, the general venue context? Uh, well, it, 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 essentially because it's a different patent. It's, I'm sorry, it's a different statute. Um, and the, the, the interpretation of Section 1400B was decided by the Supreme Court in 1957. And Judge Thomas explained that uh, no one had asked the Supreme Court in in the case uh, in T.C. Hartland. Nobody had asked the Supreme Court to decide if that prior decision was was incorrect, the Forco decision, uh, and the only issue was whether Congress implicitly changed the meaning of Section 1400B, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, uh, either in 1988 or in 2011. And uh, uh, Thomas, uh, Justice Thomas, noted that uh, when Congress wants to change the, the meaning of the statute, it normally makes its intention clear in the statute itself. But since that, since 1400B was the law in 1988 and had been interpreted by the Supreme Court uh, not to be uh, subject to the definition in the general venue statute, uh, if Congress wanted to uh, change the law, you would expect Congress to make that intention clear 
in the uh, text of the statute, but there was there was no such indication in any of the amendments uh, that that's what Congress intended to do. Um, and if if anything, uh, what the court that the Supreme Court noted is there is language in the venue statute that says uh, that the general venue statute definitions apply except as otherwise provided by law. And, uh, of course, that would include as otherwise provided by decisional law, which included the Supreme Court's decision in Forco. So um, it, it really was a very uh, simple uh, question of statutory interpretation that just hadn't hadn't uh, been been um, brought to the Supreme Court's attention until T.C. Heartland. As you say, the the analysis here really did stick to the technical statutory interpretation question presented. It didn't really deal with the the larger issue of sort of the policy concerns of hard to reach patent uh, districts um, or cases I've been funneling into. What uh, what, what, what do you make of that, uh, the analysis, the, the clear indication rule? Is that something that uh, we, we've seen before or, or often? Is that, uh, in your opinion, ap- applicable here? Do you think that the, the amendments were, were not a clear intention to change the law in, in the way that V. Holdings and the Federal Circuit here thought it was? Well, I, I think we have seen that, particularly in decisions from uh, – Justice Thomas, and uh, of course, uh, uh, from uh, former Justice Scalia, that there is a uh, uh, in interpreting um, statutes, um, they are uh, more inclined to to uh, rely on the actual text of the statute, not. Uh, arguments that, by implication, Congress must have decided or must have wanted to uh, provide a definition or a change. Uh, and in fact, uh, Justice Thomas cited in his very uh, succinct ten-page opinion uh, a, an article that Justice Scalia had written uh, about five years ago, where he uh, he. Uh, chastised courts for um, deciding cases based on uh, the implication uh, that Congress intended to change uh, the intent or the, the effect of a statute um, and, um, and 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 uh, really uh, advocated for requiring uh, some express statement uh, by Congress that that's what it was doing. And particularly in the case uh, here where uh, Congress amends one statute and the argument is, well, in amending that statute by implication, they must have intended to amend the meaning of another statute. And uh, Justice Scalia and, and, and Justice Thomas, in his, in his opinion, uh, uh, ex- expressed a view that uh, that shouldn't be done unless uh, you couldn't reconcile the, the the amended statute with the one that Congress had decided not to amend or, or even to mention. Let's start to wrap up here talking about a few of the, the principal impacts that will be felt 
after this ruling, I imagine one of the most immediate will be sort of a flood of improper venue filings in that the Eastern District of Texas. Well, that's right. I mean, there are, there are now more than a thousand patent cases pending in the Eastern District of Texas, and uh, in in probably half of those cases, defendants have not waived the uh, the defense of uh, improper venue. And many may and probably will uh, seek to transfer those cases uh, to uh, other jurisdictions that they find more convenient um, and, or, or you know, preferable just strategically uh, for trial. Um, so that, that is likely to happen. I think uh, the court that may get many of those cases uh, is Delaware because many corporations are are based in Delaware, are, are uh, uh, incorporated in Delaware, uh, especially larger corporations. The challenge there is that there are only four judges in Delaware, and they already are quite busy with their existing very heavy patent docket. So uh, plaintiffs may, would prefer not to be somewhere where, where judges are not going to be able to uh, take cases and, and, and have them you know, decided for for several years, so they they may look for some alternative, uh, perhaps a, a district where not uh, where the corporation necessarily is necessarily uh, incorporated, but but is otherwise subject to venue because it has uh, facilities and has committed uh, acts of infringement. Uh, but I think you know the the safe bet is Delaware gets a lot more cases. I think other consequences are that. You know, some foreign corporations may may actually find things are worse for them uh, in terms of being subject to suit uh, in the Eastern District of Texas because the, the ruling, the TC Heartland ruling, does not expressly doesn't cover foreign corporations. I mean, corporations that are that don't reside in the United States uh, but, but are subject to suit. You know, in, in terms of the fact that they sell products here and are subject to personal jurisdiction here. Uh, and and uh, those corporations potentially, uh, very likely, uh, can get sued in the eastern of Texas, eastern district of Texas, or any district in the country um, under the general venue statute. And um, so, while many of them m- may try to take advantage of, of this decision, it may not be it may not be possible. You're also going to have situations where you may have a foreign corporation that is subject to suit in the Eastern District of Texas, but its U.S. subsidiary may not be, because it's neither incorporated in Texas nor has a regular established place of business. So plaintiffs are going to have to decide, do I want to sue uh, in, in, in that district or some other district so badly that I'm willing to sue only the foreign corporation, or am I willing to, to sue uh, only the U.S. Uh, entity? And, and potentially not get the discovery I might or the benefits I might uh, or the injunction I might against the parent uh, that's a foreign corporation. Those are some of the uh, some of the issues. But I mean, I think for trial lawyers, uh, it, it 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 affects them on both sides. You know, if you, if, if you're a, a defense lawyer and you you represent a company uh, that is viewed as a good citizen in its in its home state, you certainly want to be uh in your home state you want you if you're going to have to get sued for patent infringement you you want to be um you know 
in 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 wherever in Ohio or in Kansas, um, um, but um, for plaintiffs, that's where their trial skills are become more important because uh, you need to be careful not to be seen as you know what people pejoratively uh, uh, call patent trolls. You know, you, you, nobody uh, nobody wants uh, to be that juror that awards a big verdict against a local company that's seen as a good employer. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, uh, there are other, other ramifications, uh, I could probably go on and on, but, you know, I mean, as, as you probably know, but what happens with, with, where you have cases where many defendants have infringed the same patent, uh, but they're subject to different, uh, venue requirements, plaintiffs may have to sue them in, in many different districts. And that may be cost prohibitive for some plaintiffs. It might, it might, uh, also actually on the other hand, increase costs for defendants who can't share, uh, resources for joint defense. It also may require, uh, uh, courts to use, uh, MDL, uh, rules, multi-district litigation rules to have a sensible, uh, use of judicial resources so that you have maybe one case go forward, the other one stayed. Or, actually, uh, an MDL panel could send many related cases to any district that it decides would be the best use of the court's resources, even one where the the defendants may not be subject to venue. So there are still a lot of uh, unknowns in how the courts will deal with all this, but uh, uh, plenty of... of, uh, Good news for defendants who have for years been trying to find a way to get uh, transferred out of courts that they, 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 they feel are unfavorable to defendants, whether rightly or wrongly. Yeah, it sounds like quite quite a lot of fallout from this, this opinion, uh, but uh, it, in the aggregate, certainly benefiting defendants more than plaintiffs here. Um, do you think that there's any chance that uh, Congress could, could act in the wake of this opinion if uh, just say, in fact, those amendments were intended to to equate the patent venue statute with the, the general one, uh, obviously the new Congress would make that, that intention more clear. Do you think there's any possibility of, of that occurring? You know, I, I, I guess it, it, anything is possible. I would have said it's impossible with, with the prior administration because the Obama administration made a very, very big push uh, to uh, to help companies, tech companies that were being sued for infringing patents owned by uh, non-practicing entities, uh, and I, I, I and you know I, I would have said it's impossible with the last administration. It's possible with the current administration because I I, I know there are some uh, some folks in the administration who are sort of supportive of patent rights and plaintiffs' rights and 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 even. You know, Senator Cruz, Ted Cruz, not that anyone really cares about patent law nowadays, considering everything else on the horizon, you know, politically, but he's actually been someone who, who spoke up for uh, inventors and patent rights. So anything is possible, but I think there would be such an outcry from so many people in business. I mean, small businesses, startups, you know, um, tech corporations, that it would be, it would just be a really uphill climb to have uh, have us go back to this status quo uh, from, 
you know, before last Monday when the Supreme Court made this decision. It's just, it would be, uh, it would be, you know, sort of shocking, but, you know, I guess possible. As you say, certainly patent law has been eclipsed a bit by some of the other legal and political news uh, out there, but on a, an appellate law podcast, certainly happy to talk about it. It sounds like um, you know, things might still be, be in flux and the effects here are still um, yet to, to shake out, but really appreciate uh, you being here to, to explain them all for us. Ben Davidson of the Davidson Law Group, uh, thanks again for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. And that was Ben Davidson of the Davidson Law Group. We'll turn now to my discussion with Mike Calhoun, president of the Center for Responsible Lending, to chat a bit about the D.C. Circuit's consideration of the constitutionality of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Very happy to welcome to the podcast now Mr. Mike Calhoun, who is the president of the Center for Responsible Lending, an organization based in North Carolina. But I'm speaking to you now, Mr. Calhoun, from Washington, D.C., where you do quite a bit of work advocating um, for national policies and regulations, as the name of your organization suggests, uh, encouraging and engendering responsible lending practices on, on the part of businesses and, and groups that provide consumer loans and mortgages and, and the like. Welcome uh, to the podcast, Mr. Cohen. It's a pleasure to join you. The case we're talking about today, um, it just heard arguments before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and en banc arguments, in fact, it had been ruled upon last fall by a three-judge panel uh, and now is being regarded by by the full circuit court. It's a uh, it's PHH Corporation versus the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And there's there's a lot to unpack here in the case. But perhaps first we could start with the uh, the respondents here, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. This is a, a governmental agency. It's only a few years old. It was founded in the wake of the financial crisis. Maybe if we could start there. What what exactly is the the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, and how did it come to be, and what uh, is its, its, its mission. So the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was created in 2011 as part of the broader Dodd-Frank Act, which addressed financial reform and sought to correct the structural problems that uh, played a key role in creating the financial crisis. One of those, as everybody knows, mortgages were at a central role in the financial crisis, and as was the case with a lot of consumer protections, they were scattered across more than seven federal agencies and were not a priority at any of those agencies, which had other primary missions, and as a result, they got very little attention, and that greatly contributed to the quality of mortgages and the protections for mortgages deteriorating just hugely during the crisis where it became a race to the bottom of who could offer the most tricked up mortgage that would have a temporary low payment but was unsustainable in the long term and when you couldn't keep refinancing those mortgages and pay them by growing house appreciation this house of cards all collapsed and brought our whole economy you know, tens of millions of jobs and generation of wealth with it. Mm -hmm. And so a, a really central component of this broader Dodd-Frank Reform Act was to create this agency that would have a sole focus on providing 
consumer protections to make sure that consumer financial products, which are important not only for households but for the whole economy, as shown by the crisis, to make them safer and make the market more transparent and work better. And that's what it's been doing since uh, it was started up. The act was passed in 2010, and the Bureau started uh, opening its doors a year later in July 2011. Maybe to put into somewhat more concrete terms some of those protections, do you have any, any examples of maybe a protection or, or two that specifically that protect consumers against loans that might be uh, predatory? So in the area of mortgages, they've done several key things. First of all, they greatly simplified and consolidated the disclosures that people get when they take out a mortgage to make it more understandable for to focus on the really risky terms like can this payment go up in the future? Um, what What's the total amount I'm paying? Uh, is there a big prepayment penalty buried in this mortgage that would hit me and I'd have to pay if I tried to refinance the mortgage? So that was one key part. Second, it also put in requirements that sort of what you're promised is what you get, that it put restrictions on how much companies can change the terms of the mortgage between when they present you those terms and when you go to closing and sign that big mountain of paper. And so in the past, a lot of times people would get to closing and the mortgage looked a lot different from what they had been promised uh, when they were uh, negotiating and choosing the mortgage and the lender. So that's another huge protection. And then a third one would be, and it's one of the core protections and goes to what happened in the crisis, is a requirement that lenders make a reasonable determination that borrowers can afford to repay the mortgages. Uh, in the crisis, uh, lenders who were paid on commission were paid more to steer people to these unaffordable mortgages. And so in the short run, that worked out better for these mortgage brokers. And so in addition, the CFPB has said lenders cannot pay their loan officers and mortgage brokers based on selling these riskier, higher-priced mortgages. Uh, one of the real drivers of the financial crisis was that there was this huge financial incentive where when somebody came into a mortgage, you could make maybe, say, a couple thousand dollars if you sold the person a fixed-rate 30-year mortgage. But if you put them in an exotic mortgage that had all these complicated terms and the payment jumped up later, you would make two and a half or three times that much, $5,000 or more for selling them that mortgage. So not surprisingly, people sold a lot of those risky, bad mortgages. And, and the, the Consumer Bureau has put in really strong protections to prevent all of those key problems. It might be an, an understatement to say that from its inception, this Bureau has really inspired and inflamed some, some partisan passions on either side of the political divide. Democrats tend to vocally support its work. Republicans pretty reliably will condemn it as overreaching, as a, an overregulating agency that will stymie business growth. Um, it's obviously nothing new that there'll be partisan divides when it comes to, to policies and, I suppose, agencies. But uh, why, in your opinion, has this body really divided folks along party lines? So I think there are two primary reasons. Uh, 
why there has been this political attack against the CFPB since it was created. First, as I said, it was part of the larger Dodd-Frank Act, and that same political attack has been directed toward the whole Dodd-Frank Act, including the CFPB. While the CFPB has taken particular fire, um, the whole act has been challenged, and a lot of that goes to there have been competing narratives over what caused the crisis. And Republicans who were in control prior to the buildup of the crisis have argued that it was government policies that caused the crisis rather than the lack of safeguards. So they claim that, for example, requirements that banks provide loans uh, to a broad range of borrowers, uh, that that caused the crisis. Well, all the data has shown that was not the case, that those loans actually performed very well uh, through the crisis, and it, were, it was the unregulated loans by the companies like New Century and AmeriQuest that actually were non-banks that made most of these toxic loans and actually went out of business as a result of the crisis, ultimately, because so many of the loans failed. But so part of it is uh, caught up in this broader context of what was the cause of the crisis, and so should the response be better government protections and closer regulation of Wall Street and the big banks, or should the government just get out of the way and let those companies pursue whatever they want and everybody will be better off? So that's the first part of it. And the second of it is driven in large part by uh, campaign contributions that the industry uh, likes generally lacks regulation and oversight, and they provide a lot of the money for political campaigns. And so the payday lenders, for example, give lots of money. Uh, we saw just recently where there was a rule that the CFPB uh, adopted to provide fraud protections uh, for people who get prepaid cards. Many people who don't have credit cards get prepaid cards, but they don't have, previously did not have the fraud protections that your credit card had. And so the CFPB provided those protections. There was one company in Georgia who had a practice of high cost overdraft fees that they put on their cards that would be affected, and they pushed, you know, for Congress uh, to overturn it. And that company, NetSpin, its senator, uh, Purdue from Georgia, uh, tried to push through Congress uh, a, a special provision to overturn and block that rule, even though it protects more than 20 million Americans from uh, fraud on their prepaid cards. Often working families are really scraping to get by. So those are the political dynamics that you see with this. There'll be individual companies or an industry that stands the, a lot to gain from absence of oversight, they contribute a lot of money, and that leads to political actions to protect them. If, if there are Congress members and if the, the GOP cohort generally is fairly antagonistic towards this bureau, of course it's a statutory creation, and the Republicans have been in control of Congress for the past several sessions, What uh, ha have there been legislative actions to try to either curtail the, uh, the agency's reach or to eliminate it altogether? So there have been dozens of bills 
to cripple the consumer agency that have passed the House of Representatives. That has been under Republican control, and in the House of Representatives, the rules allow you to pass a bill very easily if you have any majority of vote, even a one-vote majority. Uh, in the Senate, there are more rules to protect the rights of the minority party. In this case, uh, Democrats hold 48 of the 100 seats, and it generally takes 60 votes to pass legislation in the Senate. And the Senate has also been, in general, more moderate on these issues. So none of these issues have gained significant traction in the Senate, and that's likely to be the case now. In the past, of course, President Obama was a strong supporter of the Consumer Bureau and stood ready to veto anything, even if it did pass the Senate and come to his desk. While President Trump has indicated he might well sign uh, bills to, to uh, reduce the effectiveness and authority of the CFPB, it still is pretty unlikely that any of those bills will make it through uh, the U.S. Senate. Um, but then the CFPB obviously is is at, at issue here, sort of out of the frying pan into the fire, into the judicial uh, branch here that's uh, under assault in, in this lawsuit. Can you tell me a bit about the other party involved, the, uh, the PHH Corporation? How did these parties end up in court in, in this case? So PHH is uh, a non-bank uh, mortgage lender, and it engaged uh, in a practice that has been problematic for decades, and that is, um, like more, most mortgage lenders, if you go to get a mortgage and you put less than 20% down, you generally are required to buy a product called mortgage insurance, and is what that is, is insurance that pays a significant amount of money to the lender if you default on the mortgage. Um, the, it's offered by only a handful of companies uh, nationwide, and they generally charge the same prices. Uh, but lenders have a long history of telling these companies that if you want me to put your insurance on uh, my loan, then I want you to provide a kickback to me of part of the premium. And they've come up that there are prohibitions against doing that outright. And so they've come up with various devices to try and make that happen indirectly. One of them is, and I don't want to get too much into the weeds, is they say, uh, well, we'll split some of the credit risk and some of from this mortgage insurance, and I'll get a big share of the uh, mortgage insurance premium, but not take on much risk. And so that's an effect. Uh, very lucrative arrangement and a kickback to me. So the CFPB brought an enforcement action against PHH and said that this arrangement that they had uh, with the uh, mortgage insurance company, which was totally contingent upon PHH putting that company's mortgage insurance on its loans, was illegal, and uh, it resulted in excessive charges to borrowers uh, by inflating premiums over time and that they had to pay damages as a result of that. In response, 
PHH both said or contested the finding that their practice was illegal, and then more importantly, challenged the whole constitutionality of the structure of the Consumer Bureau by challenging the fact that the, it's headed by a director who is appointed for a five-year term, appointed by the president with confirmation by the Senate, but the president cannot remove the director during that term except for misconduct, proven misconduct by the director. Um, and PHH claimed that that was unconstitutional, that it took too much power away from the president. Obviously, that, that second part of the appeal, challenging the constitutionality of the structure of the CFPB is the more consequential one. Uh, what ex exactly is the reasoning behind the argument? Why um, why is this arrangement unconstitutional? Does it does it differ in meaningful ways from other federal agencies that have similar power structures? Are, are there any that are similar? So it goes way back to agencies created during the New Deal. Uh, and the leading Supreme Court case that addressed this issue occurred back in 1935 and dealt with the creation of the Federal Trade Commission, which was set up as part of the New Deal, to provide, very similar to this, consumer protections against unfair practices in the general marketplace, whereas the CFPB is limited specifically to financial products. And there was a challenge to the structure of the FTC in that its directors, it has five directors or commissioners, are uh, appointed by the president and confirmed, but like the CFPB, they don't serve at the pleasure of the president. The president cannot kick them out during their five-year terms except for uh, a showing of misconduct by the commissioner. Um, so that was challenged, and the Supreme Court forcefully said, no, that's not an improper delegation of the president's power but rather it's an appropriate buffer for Congress to establish between this enforcement agency and the direct influence of the president. Um, in the PHH case, in this particular instance, the three-judge court was unusual in two respects. One, the overall court is almost evenly divided between judges appointed by Republican and Democratic presidents over time. The three judges who had to be selected to hear this case were all three uh, appointed by Republican presidents. And most important, one of the judges came to the case with an agenda. Uh, judge Kavanaugh, who wrote the three-judge panel, had long campaigned against this 1935 Supreme Court case. Uh, because he disagreed with his philosophy uh, in, in a rather extreme way. He publicly had said that that decision about the FTC was the worst decision in the entire history of the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, there's some pretty bad decisions out there, like <laughs> the Dred Scott decision right. saying that slaves are not people. So that's a pretty elevated level of dislike. Uh, and so he had been on the record for more than a decade, 
speaking at public conferences that he objected to these so-called independent agencies in general, not just the CFPB, but there are other important independent agencies in our government. And so not surprisingly, when this case came his way, he used it to launch into an attack. Now, he as a Court of Appeals judge is bound by the decisions of the Supreme Court, so he tried to distinguish or get around this binding 1935 uh, Supreme Court decision, which has never been undercut or disclaimed by the Supreme Court, by saying, well, that case dealt with a commission of five people appointed for five-year terms, not removable at will. And the CFPB has only one director, and somehow that makes it unconstitutional when, if it were five directors or commissioners, the Supreme Court has said it, it clearly is constitutional. And so that's, that's sort of the legal issue that got presented in this case. Maybe just to, to tease out the distinction that Judge Kavanaugh makes between this case and the controlling or the perhaps seemingly controlling precedent from 1935 in the FTC case. Um, do, in your opinion, is that a, a distinction without a real difference, the fact that the FTC has a five-member commission leading it as opposed to to the CFPB with only um, one head? Uh, is that a, a meaningful legal difference such that this case is distinguishable? So not only does it not create a reason to follow this binding Supreme Court precedent, as some of the judges in the oral argument this week pointed out, that a five-judge commission is even a greater restriction on a president's authority than is a one-person-led uh, independent agency in that the president has to have the opportunity to appoint at least three new commissioners to change the direction and have the president put it, his or her control all over that agency, whereas with a one-person-led uh, agency, they only need to replace that one person. The odds are better that the president gets a chance to replace that one person than to replace three out of five on a commission. So actually, you know, a one-person-led agency is less a limitation on the uh, president's authority than is the commission. So if anything, I believe the judge has it at the, court, at the full court has it right. Not only is it not a reason not to follow the so-called Humphreys decision from about the FTC in 1935, it makes the Humphreys uh, reasoning even more compelling in this case. Just to, just to clarify, how much of an impediment is it for a president to be required to have some cause to fire the uh, the CFPB director. Um, how, how big of a difference is it between being able to fire that person at will or having to do it for cause? Is it, uh, is it a meaningful impediment, a meaningful block on, on the president's power to dismiss that person? It's a substantial, very substantial limitation. And... Uh, there, if you look back at the history, there are very, very few independent uh, officers who have ever been removed. Um, the, it's to provide, though, this buffer uh, 
uh, between the, the, the independent agencies are generally set up, and it's the rule, not the exception, in the world of financial regulation, because the judgment of, of Congress in, by both parties uh, has been that there should be this buffer between direct political direction and interference by the president and determination of uh, our financial regulatory policy. Um, you, you don't want to, uh, for example, you wouldn't want the, the president to say, bring an action or not bring an action against this lender or bank, or I'll point somebody who will. Um, and if the person is removable at will, they are subject to those kind of day-to-day -day political pressures. Um, but it does provide uh, some significant independence to the director or to the commission members. That said, though, there's, there are always the checks in place that Congress at any time can uh, you know, enact legislation which overturns either ruling of the uh, uh, agency or changes its structure or authority uh, and decisions of the agency are always appealable to court as this case um, shows the the lower the three judge panel not only found that the CFPB structure was unconstitutional it also found that uh, it disagreed with the CFPB about the liability of PHH for the specific practices that they were charged uh, were illegal. So, I mean, PHH almost, in one sense, undercut their own argument by saying the director is unaccountable, but we are going to go to court and hold the director accountable, and in fact are successful in doing so by having the court say, we don't owe this money for a penalty. There's a, a third party to consider. We've talked about the, the CFPB and and the PHH Corporation. Um, the Department of Justice, of course, often weighs in on important cases to offer the government's opinion as to which way the court should hold. When the decision came down in October, of course, it had gotten the advisement of the President Obama Department of Justice, which, as he said, was supportive of the CFPB. Uh, in the interim, of course, between that ruling and the en banc arguments, of course, a new president has taken office less amiable towards this bureau and as a result, the Department of Justice's position changed and began, became sort of antagonistic towards its uh, fellow government agency. What, uh, what exactly is the Department of Justice's position here? So the Justice Department in this case, and this is not unusual when there's a constitutional question in particular involved, the full panel asked the Justice Department uh, for uh, – it to comment on the case. It is not representing one of the parties in the case, but it's simply uh, providing its analysis to the court for the court's consideration. Um, and the before the election, the uh, Justice Department had been critical of the analysis used by the three-judge panel, and uh, they revised that after the election, took the different position, and said they supported uh, the finding that the structure was unconstitutional. But that's an advisory opinion. Right. 
by the Justice Department that's not binding, uh, obviously, uh, on the court. They'll make its own decision. Just to, to be specific as to what the argument is on behalf of a PHH Corporation, what, what exactly are, the, are they intending to happen to, to the CFPB? Do they just want a change from the director being fireable at, at will? Do they want it to be um, the, the one person had to be changed and replaced with, a, say, a five-person commission? Uh, do they want the, the bureau to be dissolved altogether? So you, you raised the good question that there are two types of questions. One is, is the CFPB uh, structured properly? And then if it is not, what is the appropriate remedy? So the three-judge panel uh, said that we find it's not structured properly and under pretty well-established court precedent, they said we are going to strike that part of the statute uh, that is necessary to make it uh, constitutional. And so they simply struck the provision that said removable only for cause, in effect making the director removable at the will of the president. Um, there are, are, that is one of the questions that the full D.C. Circuit has asked to be addressed in the rehearing. Uh, you know, there are more draconian remedies such as uh, declaring the entire structure unconstitutional, which would require Congress to reauthorize the CFPB and to do so in an altered structure. Um, I think it's unlikely that the full D.C. court will find that the structure is improper and even more unlikely that they would order uh, that the whole agency, if you will, be unwound and and throw it all back to Congress. Notwithstanding your your forecast that that seems unlikely that the court would do something as dramatic as dissolving this this bureau, if if there is an adverse ruling against the CFPB, to whatever extent that that ruling is is adverse, are there other similar type agencies out there that might feel um, also the um, some some impact by such a ruling? For example, I understand there's a the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which I think acts as the conservator of um, the two of the, the larger culprits of the housing crisis, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, could an agency like that be, be vulnerable? I understand it has a fairly similar structure. Yes. One of the ironies of uh, this dispute is, as you noted, uh, another agency uh, has a virtually identical structure. It's uh, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, and it oversees a number of uh, entities that are involved in providing financing for mortgages in America and other uh, investments. So it it covers the so-called two GSEs, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who support most of the home mortgages in the country. And then it also oversees the uh, federal home loan banks, which provide important funding for banks and other lenders. But Uh, The irony is that those agencies were previously governed by uh, different agencies, and there was widespread criticism that there had been insufficient oversight. 
And so there was a long effort led by Republicans to strengthen the oversight of those agencies, culminating in uh, a bill, the Housing and Economic Recovery Act, uh, that was passed in 2008 and signed by then-President Bush. And the irony is the number one reform that they pushed was to have those agencies uh, regulated by a single director, removable only for cause, as opposed to uh, the previous commission, the Federal Home Loan uh, Bank Board, that had been deemed uh, unaccountable and ineffective. And so there was a belief that a single director with a sole mission would have the authority and the accountability to do a much better job. And you know, that was the model that was then in turn used when the CFPB was enacted uh, into law. It, it is almost a, a carbon copy of the same structure. Yeah, it's interesting. So some, some vulnerabilities could arise elsewhere then as a result of a, an adverse ruling here against the C, CFPB. You say that you, you don't imagine the full panel here, which believe has a six to four advantage of Democratic appointees, which Republican ones will, will rule against the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. But let's say that that is what happens. Do you think uh, an appeal to the Supreme Court is likely? And if that, that were to happen, um, how might you expect that court to, to view this question, which is, has, you know, has for many years now had a, a slight conservative lean? Um, it is the again the precedent is very strong in support of the CFPB structure in addition to the Humphreys case and the dealing with the FTC in 1935 the Morrison case uh, dealing with the office of the special prosecutor was decided by the Supreme Court in the early 90s and that dealt with the challenge that uh, setting up this special prosecutor with a five-year term uh, to investigate, uh, in that case, it, you know, it, uh, various allegations. Uh, it became more famous later when it was used in the Clinton uh, special prosecutor uh, investigations. Whether that improperly uh, interfered with the authority of the president to run the executive branch of the government. The Supreme Court soundly rejected a challenge to the special prosecutor statute with only one justice dissenting. Uh, the opinion was written by a very conservative justice, then Chief Justice Rehnquist. And so uh, there is very strong authority both for independent agencies in general uh, in the FTC case and in the case of the special prosecutor, again, a sole person, not a commission, directing the special investigation prosecution. So I think they're, you know, predicting the courts is uh, a hazardous uh, occupation, but, and there's certainly uh, a range of, of outcomes that are possible, but in this situation, there is very strong precedent that supports that Congress made 
a reasonable and constitutional decision when it determined that a single director was an appropriate structure and provided both appropriate accountability and the desired buffer against day-to-day political interference in this critical financial regulator. Okay, so it sounds like there's some some precedential legs for the CFPB to to stand on pretty firmly. But you know, if we if we touched on this bureau as a, a creation of statute, and now we have a, a legislature and executive controlled by the the Republicans, you know, which party is fairly antipathetic towards the bureau? Isn't it possible that the the GOP could simply legislate the bureau out of existence, even if it, it does prevail in this case? That is a risk, although there are both um, legislative and uh, political obstacles to that. So legislatively, in general, that would require 60 votes in the Senate to pass that type of legislation. And you have 48 Democratic senators who are all uh, pretty strongly supportive of the CFPB and its current structure. And then overall, um, the protect consumer protection and oversight of banks and other large financial institutions is very, very popular with the public. We participate in an annual po- national, national poll that looks at support for that regulation in general and for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in particular and have consistently found overwhelming support. Uh, There was a recent poll done at the beginning of this year that specifically even polled Trump voters and found that by a very wide margin, they supported the work of the Consumer Bureau. Uh, And and so I think... uh, elected officials realize that while some in industry are antagonistic to the Consumer Bureau, that back home, uh, voters and working families really like the idea of having somebody on their side. And even within industry, uh, a lot of times an unregulated market uh, creates this wild, wild west where anything goes And that actually doesn't work well for many members of industry, that if you're trying to compete on offering the best product and somebody else is able to market in a deceptive way, uh, it gives them an unfair advantage. Um, It hurts not only consumers but responsible business lenders. And another recent example of the support for consumer regulation, one of the areas that CFPB is focused on is providing protections against abusive payday loans. These are the 300 and 400% interest uh, short-term loans that catch a lot of people in this uh, spiraling trap of uh, repeat loans, a debt trap that they can't get out of. And uh, there have been state referendums on these loans and whether they should be more heavily and appropriately regulated. And every one of them have passed by huge margins in both consumer blue and red states and purple states. And even in this last election, uh, South Dakota, 
which went decidedly for Trump with, I believe, 62% of the vote went for Trump. At the same time, they had a ballot referendum on passing strong regulation of payday lenders. And despite an expensive industry campaign opposing it, it passed by a three-to-one margin with 75% of the vote. So again, every time voters get a chance to talk about consumer protection and whether they think banks and payday lenders uh, and the like should be turned loose with no oversight, they have strong feelings and, and uh, in a bipartisan way strongly support uh, the work that the Consumer Bureau carries out. You know, the Consumer Bureau also has been noted in the time, limited time it's been up and operating has returned over $12 billion in cash and relief to individual consumers. It also has set up a public complaint database uh, that has received more than a million complaints. And many consumers now have found they don't even have to file a complaint with the CFPB, that when they raise that possibility with the financial services provider, it gets their attention, and often the problem is resolved even without filing a complaint. So there's a broad, broad base of support out there. Um, you know, it's taken on, and, and again, it cuts across party lines. It's it's taken on for-profit uh, colleges that often uh, have. Uh, uh, programs of little value but a high cost and very abusive financing. It's taken on debt collectors. There are 70 to 100 million families, unfortunately, in this country who have debts in collection right now. And right now, there are lots of abusive practices that the CFPB has been cracking down on. That helps a lot of working families. A lot of those working families uh, voted for President Trump. You know, a lot of them are Democrats as well, but you've seen in the press, in the industry press, that political leaders understand that there is a political cost to pay for being called out for siding with the payday lenders, for example, against the CFPB or with the debt collectors against the CFPB. You know, people want financial service providers to be available and do well, but they also want somebody to oversee them to make sure that the products and services are provided in a fair manner. As you say, it sounds like some political forces certainly buoy the uh, the CFPB for now we'll wait and see whether it uh, it withstands this legal challenge. Heard, as we said, the arguments before the full panel of the D.C. Circuit this week. Uh, Mike Calhoun of the Center for Responsible Lending, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate your airing these important issues. And with that, our show for May 26th, 2017 is complete. Thanks one more time to both of my guests, Ben Davidson and Mike Calhoun, and thank you as well for tuning in. It's much appreciated. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>